Lots of people love Christmas because it's family time, it's good food. I saw Keith wrote down he loves Thanksgiving because it's food and you get to watch football all day. Um, and so there will be NBA basketball on Christmas Day this year, uh, if you care. Um, some of you don't care. But a lot of people um, like Christmas for everything except, really, the, the story of Jesus. And how many other birthday celebrations do you know of where everybody who goes to the birthday celebration gets a present, but the birthday boy gets nothing? Is there, is there any other? So I want to really focus our attention on what the world was like at the time of Jesus' birth, and I hope that through doing this, it's going to make the Christmas story come alive for you this year. If you have your listening guides, we're going to ask some questions. We're going to answer those questions. First one is, who ruled the world when Jesus was born? Most of you know this. Who was in power when Jesus was born? What country? Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. Wow, some of you don't know it. Maybe it's a good thing we're going back through this. Well, how does, how does an empire come to be in control of the known world? Well, it's real easy. It's power and ambition. My army is bigger than your army, and my army will defeat your army, so I'm going to take what is yours by force. And it's just human nature. This has happened from the beginning of the world until now. People have been trying to take over someone else's uh, land country. Diodorus Seculus is a Roman historian. He wrote over 40 books about Roman history. And here's what he said about the Romans. They made the boundaries of the empire equal to the boundaries of the earth. That's, that's pretty um, lofty goal, isn't it? To make the whole world your empire. So their stated goal was we're going to rule the earth and, and we're going to do everything we can to increase the size and the wealth of the Roman empire. How's that for ambition? You know, we have crazy men in our world, right? Who want to try to take over... Um, the world, but they just don't have the power. At the time of Jesus' birth, the Romans had the power to take over the known world. Titus, who would later become an emperor, was sent to crush a Jewish rebellion one time, and when he had conquered the land, this same uh, Diodorus Siculus said, some 500 or more were captured daily by the Romans, and the Roman soldiers, out of rage and hatred, amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures. This would be on crosses. This would be crucifixion. Then he also said, so great were their numbers that space could not be found for the crosses nor crosses for the bodies. So the Romans would just crucify human beings in different positions for fun, just for the sport of it. Polybius was another uh, historian. Upon viewing the city destroyed by the Roman Empire, he said, it seems to me they do this for the sake of terror. Hysterion was another guy. He comes along and he sees the village right after this and he sees the the... This All of this devastation, he says, there seems to be no point to this kind of slaughter. Varus was a Roman general. Um, he was called in, in the year 4 AD to put down a uh, rebellion, a Jewish rebellion in the city of Sepphoris. Sepphoris is three and a half miles from Nazareth. Who grew up in Nazareth? Jesus. So he was called to put down this uh, rebellion. So he comes in and he destroys everyone, kills every living thing in the city, burns it to the ground. This is a really nice guy. Three and a half miles from where Jesus was. He'd have been a boy at this time. Later on, there's another rebellion. Varus comes to put it down. And it says that, that he destroyed everything for miles around. One time he crucified. He rounded up and crucified 2,000 men simultaneously, putting them on crosses around Sepphoris. It was so close that by this time, Jesus would have been a teenager. He probably could have seen the crosses from where he was, um, where he was uh, living. And you know... They crucified people to make a point. You know what that point was? Don't mess with Rome. 
Now, we have a slogan in Texas. You see it all the time. Don't mess with Texas. And that's talking about litter, right? Let's not litter here in Texas. The Romans, you don't mess with the Romans because their litter were human bodies on crosses. You don't jack with Rome. Now, by comparison, probably one of the the best known villains or bad guys in our day is this guy. Who is he? Saddam Hussein. Exactly. You're good. It's estimated that Saddam killed 290,000 Iraqis over a span of 20 years. That would be an average of 14,500 people he killed every year. The Romans killed that many in one battle. One time, uh, the Roman general Germanicus was sent across the Rhine to put down a rebellion. This happens all... You, you catch a theme here. It says, For 50 miles around, he wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Only the destruction of the race would end the war. So, for comparison's sake, if this general were here today and there was a rebellion in Palestine, Texas, not only would he wipe out everyone, man, woman, boy, child in Palestine, but he would travel to Tyler and wipe out every living person. He wanted to destroy every ounce of rebellion. And, and if you were alive, I guess he considered you part of the rebellion. These were not nice guys. Saddam Hussein was a saint compared to the Romans. And the Romans are the ones who perfected crucifixion. Now, they didn't invent it as a form of punishment, but they perfected it. It was like a contest to see who could come up with the most inhumane, horrific form of torture and the cross won. And then the, the Romans take this to a whole nother level. These guys had unlimited power. And so who was it that ruled the world at the time of Jesus' birth? What empire? The Roman Empire. Second thing is, how did they rule the world? Real simply, from what I've just told you, with terror. They ruled with terror. Now, somebody already said this. Who ruled the Roman Empire? Caesar. There you go. The first in the line of Caesars was Julius. Now, Julius didn't really have all of the power because he, he co-ruled. He, had, he ruled jointly with the parliament and the senate. He spent most of his time inventing a salad. Glad you got it because I was not sure. Really wasn't sure. In 27 BC, Octavian came to power. So Julius was the first one. Octavian comes to power. His name is later changed to Augustus. Where have we heard the name Caesar Augustus before? What? From the Bible, yes. And specifically, well, history books, when Jesus was born. So Caesar Augustus is the one who, we wouldn't even know his name probably if we didn't read the Christmas story every year. He is the one who consolidated all of the empire. He's the one that became the unlimited ruler. Caesar has sole authority. Now, probably the closest thing we have to Caesar Augustus was uh, Hitler, right? Everybody knows him. It's estimated he killed between five and six million Jews under his reign. He was an evil man. And and from all indications we have, we don't know because we don't judge the heart, but from all indications, he's probably rotting in the pit of hell today. But if you can believe it, life was worse under the Romans than it was for the Jews under Hitler. Because if you take Hitler and you expand his lifetime over the lifetime of several Caesars, you began to get the picture. Let me just show you the Caesars. Here's just eight of them. Julius Caesar was the first. Then Augustus comes on the scene. Tiberius, Caligula, Nero, Vespasian, Titus, Domitian. All of these guys were Hitler eight times in a row. 
Domitian, well, he was a special guy. He kind of declared himself God, lowercase g. And if you wanted to do business in his empire, you would first have to come to Domitian's altar, offer a sacrifice, and recognize Domitian as God. Then you could buy and sell. Well, some believe you had to even have a mark on your hand to prove that you were a worshiper of Domitian. Well, the Jews, you know anything about the Jewish history, you know that the Jews believed anybody who claimed to be God was of the devil. And so they called him the beast. And so you had to have the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell in Domitian's empire. So these guys, these were not nice guys, right? You with me? So the guy who's, who's ruling at the time of Jesus' birth is Augustus. And let me tell you just a little bit about him, because you've got to understand him if you're really going to understand the Christmas story. When he came to power, he ruled. Put up that next picture. I'm not sure I put it in there. There it is. This was his empire. All of the colored shades was his empire. This was the known world. He, he ruled from Britain to India. He restored peace to the kingdom after a hundred years of civil war. Rome was incredibly successful under his rule, so successful. Now, he's remember, this guy has consolidated all the power, so successful that the Senate declares him a god, lowercase g. They said, Augustine is God in the flesh on earth. Temples were built in his honor. Sacrifices were made to the god, god, lowercase g, Augustus. Virgil was a poet, and Virgil was a kiss-up. Look what he had to say. The one who is, this is about Augustus, the one who is to come will be the divine king of salvation for whom mankind has waited. It's laying it on a little thick, isn't it? But if this guy has unlimited power and you want to please him, you're probably going to kiss up to him a little bit. And when you hear these kind of statements being made about Caesar, it helps you understand if Caesar is Lord, if Caesar is the one we've waited for, it kind of puts into context John the Baptist's question in Luke's... Uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 20. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? There was confusion about some of the things being said. John was in prison. Things weren't going well. You know, he thought he'd done his job. And, and so he sends his followers to ask Jesus, hey, we think you're the real deal, but we don't know. Are you the real deal? Or are we supposed to expect someone else? And Jesus' response to him was awesome. He said, go back and tell John. What you see from my ministry, because in my ministry, the blind receive sight, the lame walk again, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life. Did Caesar do any of those things? Oh, but Caesar is the one who we've waited for all of these ages. Did he? No. So they went back and they told John, this is what we see from Jesus. He's the real deal. Back to Virgil. He says about Caesar. He will annihilate the evil of the past. I'm sorry, this is just comical to me. And free the people from unceasing fear. Oh, really? How stupid did Virgil think the people were? This guy comes and he wipes out everyone. My military is bigger than your military. And not only will I take you uh, take control of your land, I'll kill you, I'll kill your children, I'll kill everything, and I'll burn every everything that would remind anyone of you. But he's going to bring unceasing peace to your life. Right? That's what they would say. Would you trust Hitler to bring peace to America? No, they didn't trust Caesar either. These folks, though, had drunk the Kool-Aid because of fear, because they were terrorized. And in 44 BC, a strange star shone in the heavens. Now, if you remember, this was uh, about the time that Caesar Augustus was coming on 
I mean, uh, Julius Caesar was coming on the scene. Well, with their all of their wonderful scientific knowledge and discoveries, they later went back and reinterpreted this big star in the sky, this comet in the sky, to say that this was the advent of something new. And this was the advent of the one for whom we had waited. When Julius Caesar dies, they, they say that he rode on the stars to sit at the right hand of the seat of his father Zeus in heaven. And so... Caesar Augustus says, now, wait a minute, if my father was God and we saw him riding on the stars to heaven to sit at the right hand of Zeus, that makes me the son of God. And he began to institute this worship. He proclaimed that his cosmic hour had come. Now, this makes sense only if your boundaries are equal to the boundaries of the world and only if your ego is as big as well. And folks were claiming that nothing like this had ever happened in the history of the planet. And they began to claim that the turning point of the ages has come. In other words, they were saying, it doesn't get any better than this. And the youth of Rome would sing this hymn and it would say, the savior of peace who has brought a golden age to the world may it last with increasing splendor from age to age now and forever. Now, besides songs, if you were going to proclaim to the world, the known world, that your humble Caesar was a god, how would you do it? They didn't have CNN. They didn't have the World Wide Web. They didn't have Wikipedia. You know what they did? They made coins. And they put the image of Caesar on the coin. And they wrote things on there like, Caesar is Lord. And they began to distribute these throughout the world. And it would take a little longer than Wikipedia, but eventually the word would get out. And, and, and you would mention on there, well, my Caesar is Lord. That helps you understand the predicament that Jesus seemed to be in in Matthew chapter 22. When the religious leaders came to Jesus and they said, should we pay tribute? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? The Jews despised Caesar, could not stand the man. But a lot of the religious leaders also despised Jesus. The, the Romans were proclaiming that Caesar was the son of God. The religious leaders thought they had Jesus trapped. They thought he was between a rock and a hard place. He was going to make somebody mad no matter what he said. You remember what Jesus did? Put up the picture of that coin. Please, Mike. Jesus said, give me a coin. So they bring him a coin. He looks at it and he holds it up and he goes, whose image is this? And they said, well, Caesar's. And he turns over and he goes, and, and whose inscription is this? And they said, well, it's Caesar's. And Jesus says, well, give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give to God the things that belong to God. And the Bible says, and they were astounded at his answer because they didn't see that one coming. And they went away not knowing what to do. Good answer, Jesus. So if Caesar is so powerful and God sends Jesus at this time, it begs the question, how did he get so powerful? Well, he had a huge army. And when this huge army came to your village, they would say, Caesar is Lord. If you turned around and said, Caesar is Lord, you were allowed to live. If you didn't, they either killed you or made you their slave. So that's a pretty effective way to spread Caesar worship around the known world. Armies cost money, though. So how did Caesar pay for his army? Well, how do we pay for ours? Taxes. Yes. You can only go into battle if you have enough money. Remember, Jesus said, what crazy king. If he, he, he will count the cost before he tries to build something. If he doesn't have enough money, people will laugh at him. Or if a king is going out with 10,000 to see if uh, a battle against 20,000, surely he will count the cost to see whether he can win the battle. 
And you can understand that. So Caesar was counting the cost and he needed some more money, more taxes. And why is everyone paying taxes to Caesar? Because Caesar has ambition and ambition costs money and it takes money to expand your kingdom. Now, if you remember your Jewish history, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they went into something called what? Remember what was it called? The promised land. We got a picture that kind of shows you a little bit about this. The promised land was unbelievable. When I was a kid, you know, you read and it says it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And uh, one of my favorite veggie tales is, you know, they're talking about this and they go, sounds sticky, you know, if it's flowing with milk and honey. And I didn't understand what it meant was it's unbelievably fertile. Everything you could possibly need, not just to sustain life, but to thrive in life was in the promised land. And when they went into the promised land, God gave all of the 12 tribes some land. And then in, in the tribe, They divvied up land. And one of the things God said was, do not sell your land. Hold on to your land because this is an inheritance that I have given to you. So hold on to it, whatever you do. And then over the years, what happens? The Israelites turn their back on God and they start living their lives without God. And and before long, enemies come and take over their, their country. And now you have these taxes and see, if you were a good Jew, you paid a temple tax, but then you were forced to pay the Caesar tax and it added up to about 80 to 90% of your income. How many of you, if you made a thousand dollars in a month, how many of you could live on a hundred bucks? That's the, the situation that they were in. And the only way you could do it was to sell your land. I mean, if you can't afford the land, you've got to sell it. And then there was tremendous guilt because you've been taught from a youth, you do not get rid of the land that God has given you. But you didn't have any choice because you were either going to starve to death or go into slavery. So you sell your land. And you, you develop these different uh, talents or skills. And you go around wherever the work is. And you remember when, uh, when Jesus was born, Joseph was his stepdad. He wasn't his physical father, but his stepdad. What did Joseph do for a living? He was a carpenter. And you remember where he was, li- where he, uh, his hometown was? Not the town that he has to go back to, but where was he living? The town of Nazareth. You know why he went to Nazareth? Because that's where the work was. If you didn't have land to tie you to a particular place, there's no reason for you to stay there. You go where the work is. So Joseph goes to Nazareth, and then all of a sudden Caesar says, man, I need some more land. I've got to pay some more armies. What am I going to do? I need to raise taxes. How can I raise taxes if I don't know how many people are in my uh, country? So what does he do? He orders a census and you had to go back to your hometown where your family used to have land. And where was that that Joseph had to go back to to register? Bethlehem. And so you understand what's going on. The Christmas story comes out of incredibly harsh economic times unbelievably unstable time of life for people if you weren't Roman. And in the midst of this, Caesar says, I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to bring salvation. I'm going to bring prosperity. Did he? I mean, we, have, we can look back on history. Did he bring all of those things to the, to the country? No. And into this situation, a baby is born. In the smallest corner of the largest empire of, of the world to an oppressed, incredibly poor people, A baby is born. Are you kidding me? God, this is your solution to the problem? A baby? Because who did they need deliverance from? In their minds, it was Rome. It was Caesar. You sent a baby? Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. That night, some shepherds were in the fields outside the village, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared to them appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. 
They were terribly frightened, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news of great joy for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord. They need to be saved from from Rome, they think. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight in Bethlehem, the city of David. And this is how you will recognize him. You will find a baby lying in a manger wrapped snugly in strips of cloth. A baby is going to save the world. That's God's plan. Now, if you're Caesar, and by the way, Caesars, a lot of them killed their own family members. A lot of them would kill their heirs so that there wouldn't be a a threat to their throne. They killed wives. They killed children. You know, just crazy people because they were so deluded with power. If you're a Caesar and you're telling everybody you're Lord and somebody else is born in this little insignificant town, but you get word that this, this person is the savior of the world, the king of the world, the prince of peace, the mighty God, the everlasting father. Do you like that story? No, if you're Caesar, you don't like Luke's story. And it explains why some people died because they contained, they had Luke's story. It was a very dangerous thing to have Luke's story in your hand. Because see, Caesar says he's Lord. Jesus says he's Lord. One of them's lying. Somebody's not telling the truth. Caesar used force to expand his kingdom. Jesus starts out as a baby in a feeding trough for crying out loud. Now, if you're alive at that time, which one do you think is going to win the battle? Caesar or Jesus? You're assuming Caesar's going to. One kingdom is all about destroying people with fear. This really is a story about two kingdoms, two empires. One empire is the evil empire. I don't care what they say. I don't care how many coins they print. It's the evil empire, the Romans. The other story, the other empire is about love. That's a weird way to conquer the world. Romans say Caesar lives. I got a problem with that. You put that slide back up there, Mike. The Caesar slide. Okay. They say Caesar's Lord. Christians say Jesus' Lord. Romans say Caesar lives. Okay. Julius Caesar died. Augustus died. Tiberius died. You catch a pattern here? Caligula died. Nero, Vespasian, Titus, Domitian. They all died and stayed in the grave. But Jesus, he died too. But according to the Bible, he did not stay dead. So that begs a question. Who won? Jesus. That's the message of the baby born in the manger. Within 200 years, Christianity completely took over the Roman Empire. By 300 A.D., Constantine declared it the national religion. How could that happen? How could you go from these these egomaniacs declaring themselves God to saying Jesus is God? Well, Jesus predicted it. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your what for one another? Love. You see, wherever Christianity has been persecuted, it has flourished. Honestly... I think one of the wisest things our enemy has ever done is made Christianity a national religion. Because you look, everywhere it's become a national religion, it's become perverted. People don't understand when they're free. But when you got a crazy man killing you saying, you don't you dare believe in this, you start going, there must be some truth in this because he sure is afraid of this baby 
that's in the manger. Next week, we're going to look at Herod, and he was just as nuts as these, these Caesars. Unbelievably talented, unbelievably gifted, and unbelievably crazy. And Jesus beats him too. I'll go ahead and tell you that. You probably figured that out, didn't you? See, Jesus won. Love won out. And when wherever on the planet a group of people have loved like Jesus, have acted like Jesus, Christianity wins again. So who got the last word? Caesar or Jesus? Jesus did. Why is it so significant today? It's because Caesars are still ruling. Governments are still messing stuff up. But Caesars and governments aren't even the real issue. Do you realize that? real issue is you have a kingdom, and it may be a very, very small kingdom, but you have a kingdom, and it's your life. And the real question is, who is your Lord? Who's in charge in your life? Who or what is competing for your attention? Because all of us could stand up. If we're honest, every one of us has something that we've put on the throne. That, that if we're not careful, we'll take Jesus off the throne. We'll put this something or someone on that throne. And we'll allow them to be Lord. And we'll pursue them with everything. And then before we know it, we're way far away. And we can't feel God anymore. God hadn't changed. It's you that's changed. Your heart's become hardened and you can no longer feel Him. You can no longer sense Him. And so, this story of Christmas... It teaches us that whatever is ruling, whatever Caesar is in charge, doesn't get the last word. Divorce does not have to define your future. Pornography does not have to define who you are. Debt does not have to rule over you. A struggling marriage does not have to be what's put on your tombstone. The same God who sent Jesus to love the world to die on a cross and be raised again, the Bible says the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is available to you, to His followers. So if you bear His name as a Christ follower, you have access to that power. So the last chapter in your life has not been written. That's the true meaning of Christmas. So if you think you have a bad marriage, you think you have issues in your past, welcome to the club. You need to come to celebrate recovery. Christ-centered 12-step program that walks you through. You don't know where to go, don't know what to do. It's time for you to get there because it will walk you through a Christ-centered focus of your life where you begin to discover exactly what it is in your past that's broken. You'll discover how to deal with that. You'll discover how to, how to deal with relationships. You'll discover how to make amends. And then you'll discover how to have purpose in your future. And it all starts with a baby in a manger who loves you just like you are but He loves you too much to leave you like you are. God always gets the last word. Would you bow your heads for a moment? That baby in the manger is still alive and He's still changing lives. No matter what your circumstances are today, if you're a Christ follower, you win because God always, always always gets the last word. Would you take just a moment and would you admit to God what it is you're struggling with? Just silently where you're seated.
And can I tell you a secret? God's not surprised. He knows you're struggling. But you don't have the power. Satan keeps telling you if you try harder, if you just put your mind to it, you'll conquer. That's not true, is it? Because if you could change yourself, you would have already done it. You need a supernatural power that comes from outside of you to dwell inside of you and change you. So you got a choice to make today. And it's probably a choice you're going to have to make several times today and maybe in several times this week. Who or what is on the throne of your life? Maybe it's time to overthrow your ruler and replace it with Jesus Christ. The Bible says you do that very simply. You call out to God. You say, God, I need you. And as best I know how, I ask you to come into my life and be my Lord, be my ruler, and forgive me for my sins. Just pray that right there where you are. God, come into my life. Be my ruler. Be my leader. And change me from the inside out to be the person you want me to be. Father, I pray that this revolution that Jesus started 2,000 years ago would take a hold of our hearts and would dominate us the rest of our lives. So that we would take seriously the call to go places like Haiti and Mexico and around the world to tell everyone about this message of Jesus that no matter who's in control physically, there is another kingdom that always wins. And it's a message that our friends right here in Palestine, Anderson County, within driving distance, it's a message our friends need to hear this year. Give us the boldness to share with them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your registration cards, would you take those out? Fill out the front. And then on the back, I always ask you to write something. Here's what I want you to write. If you would be willing to admit this today, whatever it was you just told God is competing for the throne of your life, if you'd be willing to write that down, and I'm the only one that's going to see these, and, and I don't post them on Facebook or anything like that, I will pray for you and with you over these next few weeks. But write on the back what it is that's competing to be Lord of your life. It may be a marriage. It may be... Um, a job, it may be toys, I don't know, it may be drugs, it may be sex, I don't know what your issues are. And, and it's not even important necessarily that you share with me, but you got to share with somebody. The way God designed us and the way God designed the kingdom is sometimes we don't get well until we share with someone else what's going on. That's really the, the premise of Celebrate Recovery on Sunday nights. So write that down, what it is that's competing to be Lord of your life. If you have any prayer concerns, write that on there. I pray through those several times during the week. If you uh, if your email, if you don't get emails from me, I uh, put those in periodically. So write your email on there if you hadn't been getting emails from me. And I don't write them very often, so don't think you know you're missing a whole lot. If I don't have anything to say, I don't write an email. That's my theory on life. Um, so put those down there. We have three baskets at the back. One is our joy basket. We expect our church members and regular attenders to give to the kingdom of God. We give so that we can keep telling people this incredible message. We give so that, that people who are far from God can come here in a safe environment and hear about how God can change them. And so you give back there. We expect you to give if you're regular. 
If you're a guest, if you're a first, second time guest, I'm going to start saying that because some of you have been guests for months. It's time you step up to the plate. Either join or just give or both. We'll take you. But if you're a first, second time guest, we don't ever ask for a dime of your money. Because we want this to be our gift to you. We believe that the story of Jesus is real, changes hearts and lives. And so we will give sacrificially until everyone has heard the message of Jesus. We want you to keep coming. And if God calls you to join, yay. We'll plug you in and uh, you'll have a place of service and you can call this your church home. We have another basket, which is our registration card basket. If you have all those prayer concerns, we're just weird. We do. We're weird and we acknowledge it. We're hypocrites. We acknowledge that. We're messed up. We acknowledge that. We're the weirdest church you'll ever find. But we're also fun. We may be the funnest church that you'll ever find. Um, so we just make noises just because I said joy basket and everybody yells. And yeah. So then when I say registration card, yeah, that's us. If you have any prayer concerns, be sure and put that there. If you need me to contact you about something, put that down there and I'll call you this week. Then we have something called the bagel basket. See, we got to make noises about everything because we're just weird. That's, uh, we're paying off our church debt um, as quickly as possible because we believe that we're supposed to expand. We don't believe God is finished with us yet. And so everything that goes in there goes to pay off debt. Uh, Mexican food right now. Celebrate recovery tonight. You're dismissed.